0: 19 has killed more people than any war or public health crisis in American history. Deaths in the United States from the pandemic are approaching 1.1 million, with epidemiologists warning of another surge this coming winter. President Biden may find himself trying to deal with that while also contending with Republicans in Congress who continue to assert that he was not the legitimate winner of the 2020 election. How have those divisions affected our response and brought us to this point? Has the pandemic divided us further politically? Political scientists Shanna Kushner-Gadarian, Sarah Wallace-Goodman, and Thomas Popinski consider these questions and others in a new book, Pandemic Politics, the Deadly Toll of Partisanship in the Age of COVID. It's published by Princeton University Press, and I'm very pleased that it brings Thomas Popinski, the Walter F. Lefebvre Professor of Government at Cornell, to our show now. Welcome. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Many political and social scientists argue that political divisions hobbled our response to the pandemic. You stress the role of partisanship. How does your view of the role of partisanship compare with what's often discussed in the media?
1: (laughs) Well, I think that um, the way that the media has tended to treat uh, partisanship uh, and the COVID-19 responses is, is in some ways accurate, but in some ways just incomplete. I think the difference is not simply that partisans have different views about the pandemic uh, or about issues like that vaccination or how a government ought to respond to it, because you would expect partisans to have different views like this. I think the differences in the way that we link partisanship to the way that President Trump was conceptualizing the last year of his presidency, um, in which the pandemic interacted not just with Americans' daily lives, but also his re-election campaign. And so we think that President Trump and his administration took steps that deliberately made the pandemic more partisan and divisive than it otherwise
0: would have been. The U.S. has had the highest death rate of any large high-income nation, while vaccinations have lagged behind other countries. Is that the product of political and ideological divisions and um, how responsible are Republicans and Democrats? Are they equally responsible?
1: Well, it's hard to to, to attribute um, America's um, poor performance relative to the COVID-19 pandemic to partisanship alone. Uh, as we argue in the book, there's a number of other things that you'd want to keep in uh, in mind. For example, we have a crumbling and wobbly public health infrastructure that's just not very good at delivering mass health care to ordinary Americans. But I think that it's also safe to say that... Um, the Trump administration's response to the pandemic needlessly added deaths to um, uh, uh, to what was otherwise going to be a very hard pandemic in any case. I mean, the United States is not alone in struggling to manage this pandemic. Um, the- and I think also that we can uh, attribute some of the increasing levels of vaccine hesitancy And there's good new research about this as well, um, to the way that the pandemic was politicized during its earliest moments.
0: But the reason I ask that question is some political scientists argue that we cannot treat polarization as symmetrical. Norm Ornstein, who's a conservative at the American Enterprise Institute, has argued, along with others, that conservatives are worse. So is partisanship asymmetrical?
1: I think that partisan polarization is asymmetrical in the United States right now. I think the evidence is compelling. Norm Ornstein is one source, but there are many others as well who have argued that the Republicans have become more right than the Democrats have become left. And so I think that the increasing uh, asymmetric polarization um, has, has the effect of increasing just levels of partisan rancor in general. But uh, as as it applies to the COVID-19 pandemic in particular, I think it has this particular effect that we're seeing right now of Republicans being less likely to get vaccinated, Republican counties seeing these days um, greater amounts of, uh, uh, of, of suffering as a consequence of the pandemic. Um, and I think that the best explanation for new data that shows that white Americans are um, are surpassing Black Americans and in their, in, in their death toll from the pandemic is fundamentally tied to partisanship itself.
0: You described several pre-existing conditions that made the crisis response more difficult. Um, are we talking about uh, differences like climate change, inequality, immigration, health care, housing, and abortion, to name a few? Uh,
1: some of those, not all of them. I- I don't think that uh, climate change is directly involved in explaining our poor performance, uh, 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 confronting the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, for example. Uh, There's other things that that's responsible for. But no, I think that that, uh, some of the key ingredients are... Uh, America's public health infrastructure, the way that we deliver health insurance in this country, which is not particularly equal uh, and uh, and is expensive. I think um, partisan divisions themselves that predate President Trump um, are part of the story as well. And I also think there's a number of other basic facts about American inequality um, that explain why um, the pandemic would be born uh, most severely by those who are least able to, you know, for example, stay home, work from home, monitor their children when they stay home from school during the course of the pandemic. So I think we think we describe them in the book as America's pre-existing conditions. But we think that uh, and as a result, we think that the pandemic would have been challenging for any administration to handle. Um, but President Trump, we believe, uh, accelerated uh, the partisan division. Um, In February, in particular, when you read chapter two of the book, you will see um, it's like reliving a nightmare of the of the fundamental missteps that were taken in January and February of this year. Well, I mean, as a consequence that it just was worse than it had to be.
0: Going back to the beginning, the Trump administration initially predicted that the pandemic would just last a few months. Now, was politics a factor in that claim?
1: Um, Well, So we actually have, when we look at our own research during the pandemic, we ourselves underestimated how long the pandemic would last. So I don't think that he's that it's it's simply a case of him wishing it away. Although I I do think that he was he was more he was less uh, uh, he was more confident about an orderly and easy end to the pandemic uh, than we would have preferred at the time, but even we, for example, we asked people in our first couple waves of the survey how long we think that we thought the pandemic would last. And we didn't really think it would last more than six months or so. We didn't think it was going to be just a month or two, but we we didn't really fully prepare people for a two plus year pandemic when we were even formulating our questions ourselves. So I think that what's happened um, was that Trump was very eager for the pandemic to be over. You'll remember he he said at one point that, that we would be back to normal by Easter. Um, And that was just way too optimistic. I think most people knew it at the time. And I think that we've seen the consequences of that level of optimism and expectation for how people carried themselves as the pandemic wore on.
0: One divisive factor has been the wearing of masks. And you have an image of a mask on your book jacket. That's right. So the mask- is that that, that polit- Has that been political in some ways? Because that's not been my sense when I'm riding the subway. I I could not predict which person will be wearing a mask and which one wouldn't just by looking at them.
1: Well, that's an interesting uh, uh, way to think about it. in In New York City, in particular, um, I think perhaps the partisan divisions are a little bit less salient, and then also, of course, for a very long time, you had a mask mandate on the on the subway. And so,
0: well, we, um, that didn't affect everybody. Uh, it, sure. There's never, but it made it, there's never been a hundred percent compliance ever.
1: Sure. But I think that it'd be fairly, e- I, th- I would uh, wager a guess that um, that would be a, be a good predictor even during the mask uh, mandate period of compliance. But nevertheless, I think um, it's a little bit more sailing outside of uh, America's uh, either big cities or small towns, which tend to have more of a more of a common partisan uh, character. I come from a small suburb of a mid-sized city in Pennsylvania. I'm from outside of Harrisburg. And that's a, a divided place on partisan terms. And I think it was fairly easy for us to uh, see um, in places like that uh, a partisan difference in one's proclivity to wear a mask uh, or one's willingness to, to wear a mask or one's Um, frustration at being compelled to wear a mask by small businesses. And of course, it doesn't explain everything. But I think that the masks are perhaps the most visible indication that we have of the fact that the pandemic is with us. And I think that the fact that most people don't wear masks anymore in the United States is kind of a good metric for understanding that most people believe the pandemic is mostly over at this point in time.
0: I just came back from Paris and even fewer people were wearing masks there. Um, That's right. Your specialty is in emerging markets, especially in Southeast Asia and the Muslim world. How have the countries and economies you study most compared with the United States in their handling of the pandemic?
1: What's interesting is... um, Things like masking and vaccination are politically contentious anywhere you go. So it's not there are very few places where people are uniformly um, compliant with government mandates on the on these terms. What is, is striking? So a
0: South uni- Korea is a, is an anomaly. Uh,
1: I think yeah, I think it is a fairly anomalous. But I was going to bring South Korea into the conversation because. South Korea is an interesting example of a very politically divided society, sort of like Taiwan in a similar way, very sharp partisan distinctions. But what's so striking about them is that partisanship does not translate into mask wearing. So the fact that people on both sides of their political aisles in these two countries fundamentally disagree with each other with really pressing questions about how their countries are governed and what future they see for them, that did not translate into to um, uh, disagreements about things like how to respond to the pandemic, that's those are in, those are examples of where partisanship, even really strong partisanship, need not have become this fundamental uh, a divisive uh, factor in understanding how the pandemic played out in those countries. But I would say, I would emphasize um, if you look elsewhere in the region, so outside of South Korea and Taiwan, if you look to places like Indonesia. Uh, you see that there's there are social divisions that predict mass compliance as well, um, and in particular, uh, I think that every country has had to find its own path towards making its way through the pandemic. And in places like Indonesia, one of the main concerns was how will people attend religious services um, at a time in which we're, we're asking for social distancing? So that was a that was, for example, one of the things that they struggled with. Um, And you'll remember from about a year ago, the just tragic death tolls in in Indonesia and other parts of the world. Um, uh, It's 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 probably it's probably safe to say that most of us have forgotten just how bad it was. Um, But I think for those who have suffered from the pandemic, it's hard for them to forget.
0: The Tory government of Liz Truss just collapsed in Britain. There are deep divides between the conservative and labor parties there. But didn't Britain do better than the United States in dealing with the pandemic? That's right, is that because um, of the National Health Service?
1: I think the National Health Service uh, uh, may have um, uh, may have played a role here. I uh, I'm not an expert so much on British politics, but what I do know is that um, the fundamental political divide that animated the British public during this period in time was not partisan, but it was about Brexit. And so I think there is emerging evidence that that the political cleavage that mattered there was not, Tories versus Labour or something like this but rather uh, about Brexit. One of my co-authors who is a real specialist in British politics, um Sarah Goodman has 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 written a little bit about this, but this is an important thing for us to keep in mind that you can be divided about other things rather than just partisanship.
0: Well, an attempt by the Biden administration to do something even minimally similar to what the British healthcare system is like the Affordable Care Act became one of the big divisive issues of his presidency.
1: Oh, that's right. Uh, I mean, I, I, my point here is that we can think of that as one of those pre-existing conditions that, um, uh, uh, that in and of itself made things more challenging than they otherwise might have
0: been. Now, the UK has a parliamentary system with a more centralized government. Does that kind of structure make responses to crises quicker, if not always better?
1: Um, it does facilitate um, stronger and more rapid responses to crises. More importantly, though, than just the parliamentary system, I would say that the fact that the UK is not a federal system makes a big difference. Much of what is actually involved in delivering health care in the United States, as you know, is, is allocated to the states. So states play a very important role in the administration of public health um, uh, and, and welfare and things like this in the United States. Um, and so I think that means that it's just less possible for a Uh, presidential administration in the United States to do these things on its own.
0: My guest is Thomas B. Popinski, co-author with Shanna Kushner-Gadarian and Sarah Wallace Goodman of Pandemic Politics, the Deadly Toll of Partisanship in the Age of COVID, published by Princeton University Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Following up at what you just said, political scientists argue that the American political system has too many veto points. The presidential veto, two houses of Congress, bureaucratic hurdles, the Supreme Court, state governments. Can that be overcome without amending the Constitution?
1: Well, no. No. Not all of those that can be overcome without amending the Constitution. I mean, the Constitution sets out the architecture of government. Um, and according to the Constitution, those we are, a, we are a federal system rather than a unitary system. And so to change that would mean fundamental reform to the way that the American government uh, is 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 organized it's much it's much more than passing a law to have to reconfigure the entire architecture of government other things like having a presidential system versus a parliamentary system also would probably require a constitutional hmm. amendment to change because they change the nature and structure of the government there are other things like the way that we elect our our politicians that may not necessarily require uh, constitutional amendments, so adopting proportional representation rather than majoritarianism in local elections um, might be possible without whole whole scale constitutional changes. Um, but the but if if the goal were to uh, uh, eliminate all of those veto points, I think you're right. It would require a fundamental reorientation, restructuring of the U.S. government, which is made hard by the constitutional requirement of doing it that way.
0: Are there economic hurdles to crisis responses in the United States?
1: Sure. I mean, I think that um, one thing that we focused on early in the pandemic, uh, and as we were thinking about how the pandemic was unfolding in real time, was the absence of a robust safety net for many people who are, um, who are employed in low-wage low sectors of the, of the economy. There was this point, you'll remember during the pandemic, where you had to decide if you're going to go to work in person or not. Um, and if you stayed home, um, it was unclear if there was going to be anybody who was going to help you out. And so later, you know, the, the Trump administration, I think, did effectively work on things like the Pay, Paycheck Protection Program and other, and other uh, uh, government programs that were designed to ease this. Um, but these sort of basic facts about how the American economy works uh, may, meant that people had to face difficult tradeoffs about going to work. Um, uh, while sick, um, or staying home and potentially losing their job. And you, um, you... Another issue I think that's worth emphasizing is just the, the uncertainties about the cost of treatment were front of mind for many Americans during this period. Um, in, a, in a country with a more robust public health infrastructure uh, and, uh, and, and uh, public health insurance, um, there is no question of who pays for your, for your health care. But in the United States, this is just a tension that one must one must struggle with.
0: Uh, along these lines, you write, quote, deep partisan polarization created two pandemic realities in America, one where the pandemic was taken seriously and one where the pandemic was an inconvenience. Does partisan identity color our view of the world?
1: Absolutely. Um, I, uh, When we started this project, we... We had been thinking about partisanship, each in our own research, in, in, in different sorts of
0: ways. Hey, but before but, we go on, I've, I've just been curious about how we started this project. The three of you are at different institutions across the country. How did you wind up collaborating on this book? Well, and then, it's quite and a then story. answer that other question.
1: Well, it's quite a story. Um, we are uh, an interesting uh, fact is that the three of us had never been in the same room together until just about a month ago.
0: Wow. Um, after the book was uh, already in print.
1: After the book, we were holding the book the first time that the three of us met at the same time. Um, but we knew one, one another from professional circles and we'd, we'd met each other casually before. Um, uh, and uh, in particular, Sarah and I have been co-authoring for the past couple of years on a number of of related projects. Um, And so the three of us were kind of in touch with one another when the pandemic uh, started. And you'll have to remember, you'll have to forgive me a little bit. This was a this is a cloudy time. You know, people were working from home. Children were staying at home from school. Um, It almost is remarkable that we were able to put together this research project in those early days. But I think we were seeing things happening around us and feeling, feeling that we had something to say about how the, the pandemic was going to unfold. And I, I don't think we could have anticipated just how much we would have to say. There's a lot of pages in that book, um, hmm. more, than I had, uh, more than we had imagined. And
0: a lot of charts. Um, yeah, there's a
1: lot of charts. Um, but we, so that's where the project came from. And I think that our thought about partisanship evolved slightly during the course of the research project. We really, of course, have always known that Partisans of different stripes want different things. And so they join different parties because those parties promise them policies that they want more or less. Um, but what we came to understand during the course of the project is just how much in our minds partisanship is a social identity. It is not just about what you what you believe in or the team that you wish to ally yourself with, but rather a statement about sort of how what is the optic that you take to view the world? Um, and i think that once you understand partisanship through this as as another form of social identity in the united states rather than as simply like a summary measure of where your policy positions are on things i think you get to understand how how it could be the case that your partisanship could affect your very reality this the sources of information that you that you uh that you learn about the pandemic from are partisan in nature The people you talk to, the experiences you share with others, those are defined by partisanship as well. So, yeah, I think it we think it really was a a different social reality that followed from the pandemic.
0: Well, the facts of the pandemic are facts of epidemiology and other sciences. But uh, many conservatives simply rejected much of the science, just as they've rejected facts of voter behavior and invented stories of of voter fraud. Uh, Haven't? That's right.
1: Uh, but but uh, this is funny because I don't think or I don't think that any of us, either the th- any of the three of us believed that that would be quite so strong that the extent to which this would this partisanship would come to become like a, a way that one filtered information that one did receive. Um, but I think that became very clear by April of 2020 um, when we were entertaining statements like, you know, perhaps injecting bleach would be one way to. Mm. Um, uh, to uh, cure yourself of COVID, um, I think that this is this is something that, that COVID actually did make worse. Um,
0: I wonder if it, concert- how many people actually injected the bleach. <laughs> I,
1: I hope nobody did. I, I don't know how many people really did, but the look, the fact that it even meant sense made sense to say that, and that some people then had to defend it. That's the information you need to know. That that the. So the, the the leaders to which you looked for instructions on what to do were defined by partisanship. Um, I certainly myself did not look to President Trump as a trusted public health authority. I looked to the CDC and the FDA. Many, many people, including some friends of mine, view things exactly the, the opposite way.
0: In fact, there's now uh, talk about investigating Anthony Fauci uh, after the new congress comes into being um uh, and he he's worked for both democratic and republican administrations
1: yeah, but they but they they're,
0: they're painting him as a as a partisan figure
1: that's right um and you know i i view this I, I view things like that as fundamentally unserious um uh investigating him for what exactly i i'm i'm not exactly sure but I, I have no doubt that somebody will cook up a story about some um, some del- supposedly deliberate misstatement of his uh, or some knowable error or some other constituency he's supposedly looking out for. I don't think that those things are very serious. Um, I don't think that they're, they're true on the merits. But I have no doubt that in a world in which partisanship um, uh, colors the way that you consume information and your evaluations of the people that you're speaking to, um, uh, and the people who are delivering that information, much in the same way that I'm angered by, by some of the things that President Trump said. I can imagine others being angered by some of the things that Fauci said. In fact, I do know from friends of mine who are not uh, of the same party identity as me that they are really angry at, at Fauci for reasons I've never quite fully understood.
0: You write, quote, partisanship is, um, America, in America is a social identity. So does partisanship go beyond how we vote or our political views? Uh, Does it affect our personal relations? Um, Is it uh, in any way related to how we identify ourselves by our ethnicity, religion, or heritage?
1: I think absolutely so. Um, I think that the, the, the way to think about it is like this. If partisanship is a consequence of what you believe, then... If you hold a belief, say on um, on on trade policy, so like maybe you're in favor of trade, then what free trade? Then what you would do is you would consult the party platforms and figure out which one is the one that contains your view, and you'd support that party on that on that basis. If partisanship is a social identity, then the pro, the process works differently. You look to your party first and say, what is the party telling me that that it believes or What are the members of of the of the government that are affiliated with the same party as me saying? And then you adjust your preferences as a consequence of this. I think that's plainly the way that many Americans, both on the left and on the right, conceptualize themselves right now. Um, And I think that's much the way that partisanship uh, functions right now in in American politics. Um, And it it certainly suffuses not just, uh, you know, public policy preferences or who you vote for at the ballot box. I think it shapes. What sort of friends people have it shapes how people, you know, go about the daily uh, their daily lives. It shapes where they feel comfortable and when they're in a novel space. Um, uh, and I, I think that's I think this is a consequence uh, in part of the pandemic, but I think it's more a consequence of long term developments in American politics with Trump as kind of the culminating figure of this.
0: Well, depending on what religion people identify with, they might avoid certain foods or observe certain holidays. Does partisan political identity guide behavior in a similar way?
1: Uh, in, in the United States right now, I think, I think that it does. Um, I think you can figure out, for example, one's proclivity for buying a certain sort of car based on their partisanship. I'm not saying it explains everything. And certainly uh, the you know, American society is rich and multifaceted and we all contain multitudes. But I think like as a statistical matter, you could probably predict people's proclivity for doing, buying certain things, behaving certain ways, dressing certain ways. Social scientists have
0: found that Americans are less likely to cross political divides when they're marrying or, uh, or may choose where to live because they keep politics in mind.
1: Sure, I think so that I think is that social right.
0: identity or, or the impact of partisanship as on our social identity, or vice versa.
1: Yeah, so I think that it so the the way that it's been described in some research that that, that we cite in the book is as a as a kind of like mega identity, right? It's the identity that encompasses all the other identities, uh, and so you know certainly your partisan identity can't cause your race. That's not right. But certainly the salience that you think of about issues like race or the way that you think about race or religion, like what your religion means to you, um, I think is increasingly aligned with partisanship. Right. So it's not nothing's deterministic here. Nothing predicts everything perfectly. But these are some general tendencies that I think when you step back and look at the United States in, in like a holistic way, I think these patterns are very, very clear. Um, And I think that people instinctively know them. So, like, my children understand partisanship without having to be told, right, because they see the people that they interact with. Um, And it's it's very clear. They're very they're hyper aware of this without ever having been told about it.
0: African-Americans, Native Americans and Latinos have been disproportionately harmed by the pandemic. Can that be attributed to partisan divides to some degree? Weren't certain members of the Trump administration dismissive of communities that didn't vote Republican?
1: Um, so I I don't know so much about that specific. I, I, and, you know, I, this is a case where I'd want to go back to the book and see if we can. I can think of a good example of this. But certainly, um, President Trump did view public policy delivery, especially in the early mo- mo- months of the pandemic. In clientelist terms, right? So clientelism is a way of thinking about public policy. Is like you you get this if you give me something in regard in return, rather than a more programmatic way to think about policy delivery, which is if you qualify for it, you get it. And that's how it works. And so certainly Trump expected to be thanked um, uh, for for having yeah, publicly for having provided things to the states, um, things that that he, he was constitutionally obligated to provide or just any reasonable president would have done. Um, so yeah, I think that this probably uh, had a first order effect on inequality across the country. I think it probably interacted with the fact that, you know, racial inequality is not equally uh, distributed across the country either to produce some of the inequality that we see today.
0: You're listening to Let It at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Thomas Popinski one of the authors of Pandemic Politics, The Deadly Toll of Partisanship in the Age of COVID. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book. Just go online to to give2wbai.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number 2 WBAI.org or 212-209-2950 but don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large and we thank you very much and return to Thomas Popinski Talking about the book Pandemic Politics The Deadly Toll of Partisanship at the Age of COVID, published by Princeton University Press. Mr. Popinski is the Walter F. Lefebvre Professor of Government at Cornell. His co authors are Professor Shanna Kushner Guderian of Syracuse University and Sarah Wallace Goodman, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of California. Now, um, Donald, did Donald Trump capitalize on Partisan divides? Was he a product of those divides?
1: I think the answer to both of those questions is yes. I think because President there Trump were Republicans who
0: rejected Trump when sure, although many who rejected him initially now champion him. So, what happened?
1: Well, this this takes us back to the days before the 2016 election, right? I think that I think that President Trump um, had his finger on a current of American politics, um, that was not quite evident to most of us, but uh, turned out to be uh, truly, uh, truly influential. Um, I think he figured it out in by uh, testing out people's responses to his insults of President Obama and his complaints about his alleged non non American birth. I think he figured out through the course of the of the primaries that the the this party is not. Strongly centrally controlled, and so this is a party that um, could be taken over by an energetic and charismatic um, pol- politician who is willing to speak things that the more um, the more mainstream politicians of the party were no, were not willing to say. And then he also figured out that in a two party system, there's really if you're if you want to have a chance at governing, you either have to be a member of one party or you have to be a member of the other party to have a realistic effect at governments. And what he understood very clearly and very cleverly is that politicians like um, like uh, Ted Cruz, who would detest him as a man, would nevertheless debase themselves endlessly mm-hmm. for a chance to hold office uh, and and to enjoy the, the perquisites associated with it. So he understood that he was entering a, a political situation that that he did not create himself. So I described previously President Trump as the fulfillment rather than the cause of partisan polarization in the United States. I think it dates to, if you want to blame any single individual, you can blame Newt Gingrich for that. But we but should president point out
0: Trump, that he did not get the majority of the vote when he ran for president. That's a whole other issue. Sure. But if, if he hadn't been president, but another Republican had, had been in the White House, do you think things might have gone differently?
1: Almost certainly. I don't know any Republican politician campaigning for, uh, for the office of President of the United States in 2016 who would have been so fundamentally irresponsible as President Trump was when he was in office. Um, and these include politicians whose policy positions I, I, I find abhorrent and, and, and objectionable. But I don't think any of them would have been so single-mindedly concerned with their own re-election uh, and uh, as as to have taken the irresponsible decisions that President Trump took, this is a this is something that we do not attribute solely to partisanship in general or to the Republican Party itself. This, I believe, is President Trump's own
0: fault. So that's why a a, a governor like Ron DeSantis can is suddenly considered a likely contender for the GOP nomination. Uh, because he uses many of Trump's tactics, but he probably would have been obscure otherwise.
1: I think that's right. We, I don't think we would be talking about Ron DeSantis as a, as a viable presidential contender uh, in 2022, had President Trump not been elected in, in 2016.
0: Now, billionaires like Peter Thiel have supported conservative politicians. Does inequality aggravate the effects of partisanship? Has the pandemic affected people at the bottom of the income and wealth ladders?
1: I mean absolutely just look at the the disproportionate death tolls uh by income or the disproportionate impact of the pandemic mitigation net, uh measures on people who are not able to work from home or who don't have um good wi-fi so that their kids can sit at home and do school on the computer um inequality makes all these things worse um i i don't think it has a simple relationship to the to, to partisanship because um, the the Republican Party is simultaneously a party that, that champions the interests of um, conservative billionaires who wish to acquire even more money for themselves and also uh, gives voice to a certain segment of the white American population that feels like it has also been completely left behind um, by American prosperity over the past 50 years. And with the details changed, I think you can speak similarly about the Democratic Party as well. It's not as simple as... As partisanship left versus right, hmm. um, being more or less about inequality. Google and other big tech companies have political action committees that give to both parties, and they do so because they understand that their interests could be served either way.
0: Private for profit corporations haven't met longstanding needs in healthcare or housing, and yet Jared Kushner said quote the free market will solve the need for protective equipment is that just an ideological indifference to historic fact uh,
1: I think it's even I think it's even worse than that I think describing Jared Kushner as having a coherent ideology is an exaggeration I think that's purely a political uh, 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 tactic to uh, to avoid having to take any responsibility for anything personally because um, he's um, He's out of he was out of his depth and tasked with responding to something he didn't know how to respond to. So rather than assembling a team of people who knew how to do it, he simply made statements like the market's going to fix it, which he he plainly doesn't believe. But I don't think even he gave that that sentence more than two seconds thought.
0: Now, Naomi Klein and others speak of disaster capitalism, private interests exploiting disaster and instability. And that's something that we've seen happening with the covid pandemic.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think, well, so, so this is, this is harder. I, I actually don't think that private corporations themselves are interested in a poor COVID response. You can look at, for example, countries like Germany, in which the, the, the government there, which is also a federal, a federal system in which states are, their equivalent of the states are responsible for delivering lots of, uh, important public policies. Um, their government was able to work uh fairly closely together with private corporations um to uh keep them afloat when asking them to take costly measures to protect their employees so i think that it's a, i think there's something about the configuration of american capitalism and the role of large private corporations in in driving it in the united states that that generates a different sort of politics than than simply it being a consequence of large private corporations having set of policy preferences about how to handle a pandemic. No corporation wants its workers to all be sick and and dying. Now, they don't, maybe because they're interested in in using their labor for their own profits, but um, labor is an input to any large corporation.
0: The Biden administration initially opposed waiving intellectual property rights for COVID-19 vaccines. And didn't Democrats and Republicans largely agree on patent protections despite uh, the, the desperate need for vaccines in the global south did insistence on long-term preservation of intellectual property claims place profit over the common good
1: i think in that case it it definitely did we have to remember that this is not a pandemic that is solved simply when all even even if we could arrange it for the pandemic to be solved in the United States alone. It, it can't be solved um, just by the United States alone. So even if you were completely indifferent to the plight of those living in the global South for whom vaccines are, are not as available and those that are are not as effective, um, even if you didn't care about that at all, you'd still should care about um, an effective and orderly end to the pandemic through mass vaccination so you can get back to your normal lives. But just so long as there are places in which vaccines Vaccine uptake is not complete and the pandemic still circulates. We are going to have to worry about the next new variant that arrives. I think this is a case in which, um, look, the Trump administration did one really good thing. Uh, Operation Warp Speed got us uh, safe, effective vaccines that were available at no cost to anybody in record time. And that's a true miracle of modern medicine. And we should be thankful that that happened. But those companies, in my personal view, earned plenty of profits from that. And now it's time to save the world with the things that they developed specifically in order to save the world.
0: You note that attitudes toward Medicare and Social Security change as people age into those programs. While our population is aging, could aging bring us together somewhat? Um, I or or has the has the partisanship divide become so? Huge that it would be very difficult in the near future.
1: I think it's going to be very difficult in the new near future. And I don't know about you, but I don't normally think to um, to seniors as the as the community that I want to plan the future of saving American democracy around. Uh, um, their time horizons are different. I, I'm an old man. Are, are,
0: you, are you rejecting me?
1: <laughs> no I, I i hope that you I, I hope that you participate in politics as a full democratic citizen. Um, But, you know, in 30 years, it's the the, today's youth that will be running the country. And I think that's the we we need to look to them rather than to you as the source of what the uh, what the solution to American partisan division and partisan rancor is going to be. Um, I just think it's a I think it's uh, generally the case that uh, uh, although senior citizens in particular turn out more uh, for elections, um, that their concerns are different than the the median-aged American. Uh, and a solution is going to come from somewhere else, I believe.
0: My guess is Thomas Popinski, one of the authors of Pandemic Politics, The Deadly Toll of Partisanship in the Age of COVID, published by Princeton University Press. Uh, his co-authors are uh, Shanna Kushner-Gudarian and Sarah Wallace Goodman. This is WBAI New York, ninety-nine point five FM, and streaming live at wbai dot org. You note that Americans have pulled together in past crises, like the Great Depression, the Great Recession, or the then after the aftermath of the nine eleven attacks. But has the pandemic driven Americans further apart than we were already?
1: So I think the answer is yes. And why would Um, would
0: this crisis divide us when past crises have had the opposite effect?
1: I think because the way that President Trump responded to it. When he tied the pandemic to his personal political fortune, he signified, he signaled to us that we need to be thinking not of ourselves as as a nation or as a people or as a general community, but rather as people who are... Going to win from the pandemic or people who stand to lose from the pandemic, and you know, for better or for worse, that is not the rhetoric that our national leaders have a, have adopted in times of previous crisis. Um, I just don't. I I cannot remember public health communications from President Trump that were designed to be as inclusive and uh, focusing on our common interests as all Americans. Um, uh, as as he might have had he, had he wished to confront the uh, uh, the pandemic in the proper way. The first thing that he believed was that the, the, the pandemic was somebody else's fault. For a while, he argued that it was a conspiracy against him okay. or that a people like in Democrats China. were. Yeah. Or that people like Democrats were somehow happy at the pandemic because it would hurt him somehow. I don't think this is a serious way to lead a country. And it had the, exactly the consequences that that he wanted it to have. He mobilized members of his party to defend him in the face of truly outrageous behavior. And and he almost won an election as a consequence of that.
0: Well, why has that been popular, considering the fact that uh, to the people who are critical, it just seems like outrageous behavior? Uh-
1: I wish that I understood the only uh, I don't. And the, the the fact of the matter is that I and I am so dead set against behaving that way as president that I cannot rationalize it and I cannot excuse it, which makes me a poor interpreter of what people who do rationalize and excuse it actually are thinking. But basically, uh, the way that I think about it is as as if you believe that he was standing in the way he was the he was a person who whatever his flaws was defending something else that you cared about. Perhaps it is your white racial identity. Perhaps it is an old uh, you know, fictional view of what the 1950s were, were like and why that was good for people or his willingness to put people on the Supreme Court that you cared about that you just excuse any other behavior. You rationalize it away. But I, like I said, I'm a poor interpreter of this because I don't understand it. I, I don't myself understand how one could respond to such a devastating public health emergency by thinking first and foremost, whether or not it's going to affect him. With well, all the resources available to him and all the possibilities of this great country, to focus on that is just, it's it's incomprehensible to me. And so I can't comprehend it.
0: Well, the polls all indicate that the public is concerned about inflation, uh, concerned about Abortion rights and a whole bunch of other things, but pandemic politics never comes up in the discussion. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, I think that we've uh, collectively given up on the pandemic. Um, No, there's, and for both good reasons. We just learned to live with it. Well, yeah, I mean, so many of us got vaccinated, so we don't have to be concerned about it in the same way we used to be. I'm vaccinated and looking forward to my fourth booster or my second booster, my fourth shot. Um, and the reason why I want to be vaccinated is because I don't want to live the way that I had to live during the early parts of the pandemic, when we were afraid of what might happen, you know, you and me uh, alike. Um, so for some of us, we're able to move past the pandemic because we've gotten uh, we, we've done the thing that we're supposed to do in response to it. Um and then there's a also a, a a sense of exhaustion i think that we can feel um, i've i no longer carry a mask in my back pocket for example i noticed this when i stopped for my morning coffee today i don't even have a mask with me anymore um partially i mean i've i've had covid i've and survived it and i've been vaccinated as i said and as more and more people around me are vaccinated in, in the same way i'm able to move to move past it and i think that's That's kind of the natural course of things. Um, uh, But uh, certainly, for example, if I were to if I were to be in in an enclosed space with a bunch of strangers, uh, um, I would wear a mask again. Um, So the pandemic isn't fully behind me, but it's certainly something that is um, that that has been uh, that is no longer front of mind because we've had three plus years of it. And people are, I think, ready to move on.
0: There's been a polio outbreak this year. I know this is, uh, it's, it's happened after your book was written. Its scale is far smaller, but polio had been thought to be eliminated in North and South America has, has partisanship affected the response to polio as far as you can see. So specifically
1: the outbreak of polio that you're referring to, I don't know if that's a partisan issue mm-hmm. that explains this. Um, but abstracting away from that, uh, from polio itself to, for example, childhood vaccination in general.
0: Well, I, well, very- I just want to get back to the time when, um, uh, when the vaccine was developed for polio. It didn't seem to divide the country. I, I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm remembering wrong. But almost everybody uh, wanted their child to be vaccinated.
1: That's right. Um, The messaging around the polio vaccine was 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 very different. Um, It was not divisive in the way that this one uh, that the COVID-19 vaccine uh, was. But I I, I, you know, it's also look, it's important to remember that the polio vaccine was not um, it was not totally apolitical. And the rollout was a bit tricky. And there were cases of uh, of. Of people who were given the wrong vaccine and, and suffered as a consequence of this. So this is this is a more complicated history than the than the sort of neat version that I learned in school. Um but no, the in, in broad strokes this was that the idea of we can just defeat a virus that we don't have to suffer from by all getting vaccinated. It's a wonderful idea. Um the but the way that the polio virus works is different than the way that the coronavirus works. And so it's unlikely we could totally eliminate it in the same way that eliminating polio has been made possible by, by, by max vaccination.
0: We have just but what I quick... wanted to say is that. Sorry. Go ahead. Finish what you're saying.
1: What I wanted to say is that there's evidence, not in our book, but from other researchers working on this issue in the United States right now, that mass vaccination of children against any sickness of any sort of preventable communicable disease has become more partisan in orientation. You'll note, for example, that Tennessee removed vaccination requirements for any for any disease hmm. for uh, enrolling children in, into school. Um, that's a this is a new world. So it's not just that covid Uh, uh, partisanship has made people uh, divided over the COVID vaccine. It's increased, it seems, the salience of partisan divisions over any sort of vaccine. And those were not inherently partisan prior to um, uh, to uh, 2020.
0: Now, we have just about a minute left, but I wanted to point out that epidemiologists and others are already talking about the next pandemic. Uh, What needs to happen to avoid another disaster? Can we get past this partisanship?
1: Well, the first thing that we need to have is a president in office and a Congress uh, that is willing to speak with a united voice about the importance of community uh, responses to community problems. You don't have to say, you know, the people or the nation or whatever, but these are these are infectious diseases. They are spread uh, uh, by through communities, your ability to to be protected from them is not fully, not completely a function of your own choices. And so we need to rely on one another collectively. I believe that this is possible. I also believe it is harder than it will have to be uh, because of the way that the Trump administration handled the COVID-19 pandemic.
0: I've been speaking today with Thomas Popinski about pandemic politics, the deadly toll of partisanship in the age of COVID, published by Princeton University Press, Michigan. Papinski is the Walter F. Lefebvre Professor of Government at Cornell, and his co-authors on the book are Professor Shanna Kushner-Guderian of Syracuse University and Sarah Wallace-Goodman, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of California. And I thank you so much for being on our show today. It's been an eye-opening conversation.
1: Thanks very much for having me, and uh, you, you do stay safe and healthy.
0: Well, so far, so good. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Hugh Sansom for preparing today's interview and to my audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Keziah Glow, the executive producer of London Open at Large, for all the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcast. And you can check us out on Twitter if you'd like to write to me. My email address is LeonardCloPate at WBAI.org. But all of this is only possible if we... Get our listeners to support WBAI because they are our only source of support. Uh, and so I need to ask you to to help keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. If you have the means to do so, please make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and the number 2 wbai. or 212-209-2950. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, if you uh, make a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Lobby at Large right now, you can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Pandemic Politics, The Deadly Toll of Partisanship at the Age of COVID. So why not make that call right now? Uh, again the number 212-209-2950 or go online to give to wbai.org and you might also consider becoming a sustaining member what we call a BAI buddy for $10 15 20 25 30 however much you are willing to give us per month until you decide that you want to end that let's hope that you'll keep it going for a while. We will say thank you if you do that with a WBAI tote bag if you sign up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. Either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies totally on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. Um, So please do your part. Uh, to keep this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us on Monday when my guest will be Jonathan Friedland discussing his new book called The Escape Artist, a fascinating story. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend.